Hello, and welcome to this lovely February edition of Outward. I'm Brian Louder, your faithful editor, and the only Valentine's Day present I want is a roll of duct tape from Tig Notaro's super butch engineer character on Star Trek Discovery. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender, and I'm still quelling over the baby butch I saw at the grocery store last night buying a little bouquet of roses and a teddy bear with her lesbro. Oh, so cute. <laughs> and I'm Brandon Tensley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. And I'm still basking in the glow and glitter and gay yeehawing, whatever that means, of the Casey Musgraves concert I went to a few weeks ago. Follow your arrow. <laughs> I am. Don't worry. On this month's episode, we're going to talk about queer media, something you may have noticed has recently been in a state of flux, we'll say. So we'll use a recent BuzzFeed article by Trish Bendix to anchor us in a conversation about the state and purpose of queer media before talking to the New York Public Library's Jason Bauman to give us a longer, broader view of the history of queer publications. We'll also speak with Reese Bernard, the co-founder and CEO of Autostraddle, to give us a peek into what it's like to run an independent queer media site today. And then we'll finish up with our usual gay agenda. But first, we are going to kick things off with a round of pride and provocation. Brendan, what are you proud of or provoked by this month? So I am provoked. <gasps> I know, I know. Shocker. I actually had to think about this. So a gay friend of mine told me about an experience he recently had at the gym where he saw a straight bro wearing a shirt that says, I'm not gay, but $20 is $20. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of gross. Interesting. Yeah. What are the chances that that guy was actually gay, though? Yeah, I mean, well... I don't know. Like, I don't I don't know a self-respecting gay person who'd wear that. It's well, so in part weird. because, like, so, like, I mean, I'm sure there are different opinions that people have about this. But I feel like not only is it extremely not funny, um, because I feel like it's basically a different iteration of the tired and tiring phrase, no homo, um, that I thought we left in, like, 2005. Mm-hmm. But it also perpetuates some really fucked up attitudes that have long existed around homosexuality. So... I think the most obvious one is that it quite literally cheapens the act of gay sex. Uh, so it makes it seem as if it's only desirable in a transactional way. Mm-hmm. Um, for only $20. For $20. So, super cheap. So little. So little. Yeah. Not even worth it. But it's also a very glib and crass way to talk about men who have sex with other men. Um, because I think the subtext is that it uses homosexuality as this sort of benchmark or yardstick to say that, like, at least I'm not that. At least I'm not gay. Um, and then I think in, like, the broadest way... It just makes it seem like it's unnatural and gross. It's keeping it at arm's length. It's trying to make it crystal clear that it's not worthy of really anything beyond $20 and derision. So, you know, people probably have different opinions, but I think it's just pretty galling that somebody would wear a shirt like that in the year of our Lord 2019. So I also feel like it, like, exacerbates the ambient, like, homophobia of the gym as a space and mm. gen- like I'm already at least at like there are like gay gems but like at, at normal gems like I'm which I go to like I'm already like stressed about about yeah. like homophobia so like having that be so explicit would like upset me for sure how do you like go it. to the gym Brian <laughs> so cool you don't even lift Christine wow. <laughs> Brian what are you proud or provoked by Okay, I have a pride. So I was recently at the local Kiehl's store replenishing my skincare regime. (laughs) 
As one does. It's working for you. Thank you. And I was helped by this um, gay elder who walked up, you know, as the as the assistants always do, and was helping me choose items and talking me through it. And the thing I the thing that made me proud about this interaction was that the moment that he realized that I and my partners who I was with were gay, he immediately we immediately went to the like gay social space where it was like you know, jokey and like familiar. And so the first thing he said was he was showing me like a body butter and he said, don't confuse this with boy butter. (laughs) Thank you. you. Then uh, as we were at the cash register, he was creating a bag. I guess I have to like tie knots in the like string to make the bag. Who knows why? And he was having a little trouble and he said, ah, goodness, I'm not usually this bad at tying my knots and sort of like winked at us. (laughs) And then the last... What is that related to? Like, I think he's like a BD... Yes, yes. I think I think that was the implication. And the last and most vicious slash amazing thing was that he at Kiehl's you always get these little samples along with whatever you purchase. And so he was like, you should have, you know, this try this this um vitamin C like deep line corrector. Oh, and he said and he looked at me out of out of the group of us, he looked at me and said, That one's for you, honey, for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I was so gagged. Good. I also loved it. Um, so kudos to that gentleman. I will be back. And only deal with gay people in your shopping is my advice. God, yeah. I want to go there just to be like red for filth. There should it was amazing. be queer specific skincare stores. We have our own needs. And we prefer to receive our critiques in in unique ways. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I have both a pride and a provocation mm. this month, but I'll keep it quick. Um, so as... Everyone here undoubtedly knows, if not, I'm going to be pretty upset. There's going to be an L Word reboot or a sequel. It's coming out at the end of 2019. A whole bunch of the original cast and production team is on board, including Eileen Shakin, Jennifer Beals, Catherine Monig, a.k.a. Shane, and Leisha Haley, <laughs> a.k.a. Alice. And Jennifer Beals, of course, was bet the namesake of our Pride and Provocations. So my friends and I, as soon as we heard that, had a text chain going about like, oh, possibly we should dress up in costume for the first episode. We should each dress up as whatever L word character we are. And then we all tried to like assign each other to a character. And this was like in the morning, maybe like a 9.30 a.m. text chain. (laughs) And it was the kind of thing where if you looked away for a minute to actually do a work thing or something, you would come back and your phone would have like 150 unread text messages on it. I had to put my phone on mute because um, the people around me in my cubicle were getting upset. (laughs) And it was uh, just incredibly revealing to see which characters my friends thought each other would be. There was actually some drama when I suggested that someone should be uh, Dana's like pushy PR lady girlfriend. Mm, mm -hmm. I forget her name. Um, but everyone knew who she was. And, and, you know, I was taking it as like a very – like a loose interpretation of a character that somebody could play. But it just – it made me proud that we had this shared cultural touchstone. I'm also feeling provoked though by what will surely be a horrible in like product of – trying to reboot and recast and rewrite the L word for 2019. I would say I'm provoked by that because it hasn't <laughs> even happened and I'm already feeling provoked. Um, so I'm looking forward to being really upset by and engaged uh, like unreservedly in the discourse TM around that when it comes out later this year. 
I'm looking forward to seeing your feed when that happens. Yeah. I would just like to quickly say that I think Outward should take credit for this reboot because <laughs> uh, we published not not only do we have the provocations in our in our segment, but we also published uh, an update of the chart from the L Word yeah. like a week before this announcement oh. came out. On Slate.com. So, on Slate.com. You can go read it. It's uh, Google L Word, the chart. Yeah, we'll link it on the show page for sure. Every celesbian that exists is connected to the show. Um, so and so good. I think this reminded them of how much they love each other and then they went decided to make that reboot is my, is my uh, feeling about that. I think you're probably right, Brian. So before we get into our discussion today, I want to beseech our listeners to make us proud and unprovoked <laughs> by going onto your podcast app and rating and reviewing our show. We're trying to reach more listeners, and we're so thankful to the many of you who've recommended us to your friends and colleagues and lovers. Um, but one really great way to get new listeners is to have a super good rating on iTunes and uh, Stitcher and what have you. Um, so go and smash the fifth star or whatever the highest rating is <laughs> Five, yeah. on your app, you know, if you actually do love us, and write a nice little review for us, and we'll be so proud. I co-signed that, Christina. <laughs> and it also helps us, you know, figure out, like, what we could improve on the show, things that you like, things that you would like us to dive into more. So, you know, like, it's not just us, but it's also us helping to give you the better sort of queer content that you want. So please do rate us and give us Five stars if you feel so moved. Please and thanks. And if you hang around to the end of the episode this week, we will have a special Slate Plus segment uh, in which we talk with Brandon about his first experience at a drag show, which I'm so so excited to hear about. So uh, stick around for that. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. The outlets and journalists who make up queer media normally spend our time covering issues that impact the lives of LGBTQ people. But over the last few months, we've become a story ourselves. Out Magazine, one of our most prominent publications, recently revamped its look, focused, and masshead with an exciting focus on diversity, but has simultaneously been accused of leaving many dozens of freelance contributors from earlier issues unpaid. Into, Grindr's foray into online content closed suddenly in January after only 17 months in business, leaving a slew of talented queer writers out of the job. And they were quickly joined by others caught up in a larger wave of journalism layoffs, including much of the BuzzFeed LGBT vertical team. All of this turmoil has many queer media makers and consumers, very much including us, wondering about the role of this work in 2019 and whether it has a future. So that is what we are going to figure out today. To get into this discussion, uh, let's talk a little bit about what queer media is for. Uh, in her big BuzzFeed piece on this, Trish Bendix, uh, who we should mention uh, was laid off from Into Herself but has been uh, active in queer media for years, she writes that, quote, LGBT media was born out of a necessity for information sharing and accountability. 
So in that, you've got two functions, connecting with other queer people in more closeted times in the past and holding homophobic mainstream press and officials accountable. What do y'all think queer media's role is now? Uh, So I still very much value queer media. And I think for me, it kind of comes down to a couple of different functions. Um, and so, like, in part, I, like, I just read it for the, like, queer cultural deep cuts. And so, like, for instance, I remember I was writing this piece last year about Winnie Houston, and I wanted to know more about her own sort of interaction with queerness beyond just the rumors that she herself is queer. Um, and the most helpful, very insightful piece that I read was um, this in-depth interview that she did with Out Magazine uh, back in 2000. Um, and I think it's the sort of thing that probably you wouldn't have gotten the sort of dimension and nuance uh, that, um, you know, have that, you know, have the interview come from a more mainstream publication or um, from a publication that didn't necessarily see the importance of approaching this topic with uh, the degree of sensitivity, um, but also rigor that I think it deserves. So for me, that's primarily why I like queer media outlets. But, you know, what do y'all think? For me, queer media was my first entree into journalism. Um, I mean, besides writing for my college newspaper, the first real piece that I had published for something outside of the school that I was at was at a on a DC queer blog. And it felt really accessible to me because, you know, A, pretty much everything I read on the site related to some person or place that I knew in DC. But also, I felt like, okay, this is a, a small enough and close enough community and topic that I, a you know, journalist just starting out who might not have the resources or clout or experience to go out and convince, like, any, anyone to give me the time mm-hmm. of day if I was trying to, like, report a real story. Like, I can write about my own experiences with the D.C. queer scene um, and, like – interview a local queer baker or do a review of a a queer party or something. Um, And it was like a pretty low barrier to entry. I uh, then started, um, that's why I didn't start it. I then joined a local queer blog and edited that with a couple of people for several years. And I think that's where I got the sense of community building that um, Trish Bendix talks about in her BuzzFeed piece where Although we're living in a time where we're able to connect with queer people all over the world on the internet, it's not so much about, you know, the local classifieds and whatever. There still is uh, a need for, like, hyper-local information sharing, community building, and organizing. That said, um, I feel a little bit like bad about this, but I'm not sure that I read much queer media anymore, in part because their, you know, resources have been cut and publications have shuttered or shrunk, but also because I've never felt like there's been a a surplus of the kind of sophisticated queer cultural coverage that I really want. And now more mainstream places are doing those kinds of things. What do you think, Brian? I think about this, I guess I come at this a little bit uh, being an editor of like an LGBT vertical that's inside of a larger uh, publication like Slate, where our sort of mission statement is actually 
to communicate about queer issues and ideas to not just queer people, but actually anyone who reads Slate. So it's a kind of, I've heard it described as a bias for everyone model. Um, and so I, I think of like my role and sort of the role of that kind of queer media as being maybe translators or um, advocates in the sense of like these deeper questions or deeper debates or historical information or context around whatever the, like sort of the news headline is, that stuff matters uh, to everyone, to, to anyone who consumes news and, and like content on the internet. Um, and so to me, that that is like a valuable use of queer media that, that isn't the same kind of... Um, maybe the same kind of activist work uh, that older queer media was really about, um, but is still very vital. And that actually uh, raises, like, I think a pretty central question in this issue, which is, like, should queer media be, like, advocacy and activism only, or should it be, like, traditional journalism or something else? I think that's something that a lot of us in the business and and sort of readers, too, wrestle with. What do you all think about that? This is an interesting question at a time when there's been a lot of discussion in mainstream media about what does unbiased journalism or objective Mm -hmm. journalism mean. So I think there's a growing consensus, especially among um, a younger and possibly more progressive generation of journalists, that it's it's not – necessarily objective or truth-telling to give equal time to, quote-unquote, two sides of an issue. So it's not, you know, an accurate and truth-telling depiction of climate change to, quote, um, a a climate justice activist and a person that just refuses to believe the science about climate change in equal measure. And uh, what queer media has always done is not give time to people who refuse to acknowledge the humanity of queer people. So when you're talking about, um, you know, one thing that Outward on Slate.com has covered a lot over the past couple years are these bills to restrict the rights of trans people to access facilities that are appropriate to their gender. And, you know, we don't need to quote somebody saying like, oh, well, you know, trans people are a danger to cis women or whatever in those pieces, you know, even if it's not a piece that's necessarily straight out arguing why, uh, you know, these bans are harmful, although that's part of it, too. It's just uh, sort of shifting the balance toward justice or uh, what what we believe are, are truth and, you know, acknowledging the humanity of people um, and not so much toward like this is a, a hypothetical or intellectual debate that we can mm-hmm. explain accurately by just throwing two people with, quote unquote, op- opposing views um, up there at the same time. I'm also interested in the business of queer journalism right now. What do you guys know about the struggles that queer specific outlets are facing. Well, Trish Bendix in this great piece, which is called um, Does LGBT Media Have a Future, really, I think, gets into this um, question of like the, the sort of economics of it. Because one of the big questions is like, can we have queer media that is sort of independently run and community funded, which I don't know if she comes out quite so strongly as this, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that she thinks that that's sort of like maybe a better model based on just the way the piece goes. Or, you know, does it have to be funded by corporations, which may or may not be queer run? Um, 
probably have, you know, certainly have like financial um, interests that that are separate from the editorial interests. I'm just, I'm not convinced that this is particular to queer media. Mm. Um, I mean, just based on conversations that we've had at Slate and conversations, you know, within the whole industry, the problems that Trish talked about in the piece are problems that every single publication is facing. The fact that advertisers are no longer working directly with publications anymore. They're buying ads on Facebook and Google, or they're buying those little ads that follow you around the internet, which same thing, and which individual publications get a lot less money from. I mean, that's why all these layoffs are happening. One of, you know, two or three reasons, I guess, but the main reason. And it's just crazy to me how quickly it's gone from the idea that, oh, um, media companies not wanting to run gay content because no one's going to buy ads against that gay content to now companies are cutting queer content just because that you can't make money off of anything anymore in journalism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're slicing like every single vertical and the queer verticals are the smallest ones. And so they're going to get hurt the most. Yeah. And I, I think for me, that's like one of the biggest points is like it's not something unique to queer publications, um, but they're probably uniquely felt by mm-hmm. queer publications just because they're, there are so few. So, uh, you know, I think at the same time, it's you know, queer publications have the most to gain, the most to lose from, you know, the economic business decisions behind like what kind of content we're going to sponsor, um, what kind of stuff could actually like, you know, bring in the most eyeballs, bring in the most dollars. Um, and I think that's when it just becomes scary because I feel like that's when it, when it becomes sort of, you know, if somebody has to go, like the queers are going to be the first ones to go sort of thing. And then the loss of that content, um, I feel like the, it's just magnified in a way that it might not be with, uh, the loss of other sorts of content. I have another question for you guys. Do you think queer media is as necessary and essential today when at you know a time when it's there's little to no stigma involved in having your byline on a piece about you know queer life and the, and publications across the spectrum are running pieces on queer stuff as it was back in the day i kind of view it as like maybe a soft necessity i don't know if that's a real thing <laughs> but that's what we're going to roll with <laughs> because i i kind of do think of these very specific queer media outlets as their own sort of cultural talismans, right? And like a sort of a way to to build community in a way that gives issues and topics the space to breathe um, that, you know, even in 2019, that they're probably not going to get when they're competing against, you know, different kinds of content, uh, content that, you know, isn't necessarily um, queer. Um, and so in that way, like, I, I do see that as its own sort of necessity. Maybe it's not necessary to have like, as many. Um, But I think, you know, that also runs to the problem of when you don't have a lot, then you kind of have like one queer voice, like speaking for like everyone and everything. And then that becomes its own sort of problem. But I think like in a soft way, like I think I I do see a necessity until like we live in like a beautifully equitable world where like, you know, this is a non-issue. But where everyone is, you know, in the middle of the spectrum of sexuality and gender and there's no (laughs) gay or straight anymore. But until then, like, I yeah, I, I see a you know, I enjoy them and I love them, even if I don't read them as much as I, you know, read, you know, things on Slate.com or something. So. <laughs> They're still brought to you by Slate, this whole segment. Brian, what do you think? 
Well, I think it's completely unnecessary and we should just stop talking. Now. <laughs> like, no more. Why are we doing this podcast? Stop it. <laughs> um, no, I, so actually, I think, uh, I think the need has evolved. So, and I, and actually we've, this is sort of mirrored in like what, what Outward, like at Slate has, has done, or how it has evolved over the years since it was founded. You mean founded. Outward, I think, the vertical Outward, Slate, not the podcast? Yes, Outward, okay. the vertical, the text, the, the text uh, <laughs> arm of this platform. It's, you know, that started very much uh, in 2013 as a, a sort of a news um, or much more newsy um, kind of uh, operation. And I, I think a lot of this hinges sort of around marriage equality, actually, oh, like with, with with many publications, but not not just us. But um, I think there was like sort of an interest at that time in having more, you know, both like expert writers on these issues and just more coverage of these issues as we like ramped up to that decision. And then as as these issues became more prominent in the main like in mainstream news in general, it became less important for like. Uh, like specific out- queer outlets to cover like the news mm. and more important for us to I think for us to do like context and like the deep cuts that Brandon you mentioned that kind of thing I think most most you know mainstream outlets at this point can cover like a decision about the trans ban right like in the military we don't you know I don't think you necessarily need like a special outlet or vertical to do that anymore but what you do need and what's useful I think is for outlets uh, or right Writers um, who are doing sort of queer-specific stuff to come in and give you context of that history to that, even like count like you know I feel like we like a, a, a typical piece that that we could publish in that vein would be like well here's actually why it's antithetical to queer politics for queer people to serve in the military in the first place right and so so those kinds of things are going to come from a dedicated queer outlet or 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 sort of voice uh and they're and they're not going to be able to be done in in the typical places so that's that's the need i feel like we're filling now but you know it it evolves so it's it's hard to say um how how much longer even that would be the case yeah i i have a very guilty conscience when i talk about this because i don't think i consume as much queer specific media as i quote unquote should um, or that I feel that I should. I read mostly mainstream publications and will read all of the queer things that run on those mm-hmm. mainstream publications. But I've had trouble really identifying with or feeling spoken to by a lot of the queer media outlets and properties that exist today, in part because a lot of them are very much run by and focused on men. Even still, I mean, I know sort of the legacy publications were always like that, but um, even today with some of the newer properties, it feels that way to me. Um, and and also some of the – I feel like I've maybe aged out of some of the newer properties um, like uh, them.us or something where I think I quoted one of their pieces in our – uh, astrology segment where yeah. I just mm-hmm. felt like, wow, this, you know, I'm 30 and like I don't feel super old in my day-to-day life in, in my own queer community. But reading a piece about like the queers who are marginalized because they don't believe in astrology, I felt insanely out of touch. You're an old. <laughs> yeah. And, and, made me, and, the, and maybe that's a good thing. I mean, if there aren't pieces like that to make me feel old and out of touch, I'll never know what the youngs are talking about. And I'll never know <laughs> that I'm old. Like that, I think, helped me accept a part of my queer self and my position in queer life that I wouldn't have gotten from 
you know, whatever the latest Pacific Standard piece Brandon <laughs> Tensley wrote. So resolved, the role of queer media is to tell you when you're old. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I would like to end, you know, uh, this context of this this episode is sort of in the wake of a lot of sad news about queer media places shutting down and layoffs. But I would like to hear from you all, like, what sort of modes or outlets in queer media that you're excited about right now? What What is coming up or, or starting that, uh, or has, you know, has been going for a little while that's newer that seems hopeful to you? I really like uh, what I've been seeing as a little bit of a grassroots return to analog forms of grassroots media, like zines. Um, And I think there are more ways than ever to fund something like that. Like, uh, I know a lot of queer media producers who are on Patreon, and Instagram is a really great way to promote that kind of thing. Uh, And I feel like it's a little bit of a backlash to the anonymity of the community that the internet has created. Because I think that that's both a good thing and a bad thing, that the the purpose that older uh, brands of queer media served to be community spaces and, you know, the only way you could find out what was going on in your city for queer people that weekend or whatever. And now that's outsourced to the internet, which is great on one hand because it's way more accessible. But on the other hand, it's it can be faceless and nameless um, and hard to have it feel like you're tangibly connected until you actually go to an event. Uh, but for people who are making physical... And and maybe this is because I'm an old, but like actual physical products that are cheap, but, you know, you have to pay for because you should pay for media uh, are encouraging to me. And I can see that. I I don't see that going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I think in that vein, like one thing that I, you know, and again, this isn't unique to to queer media, queer writers, but newsletters um, Mm. and how that just creates a different mode of distribution of content. Uh, I mean, I, you know, the, one Do of the Do you have pluses. any good ones? So not off the top of my head that I can remember, but my partner actually was just telling me about, um, he was uh, somebody at his university, um, a queer scholar has her own newsletter. Um, and, you know, it's about like literature and it's a lot more academic than, you know, what, um, you know, you might just talk about at a bar or something like that. But, you know, I think it's really cool that like people can curate their own content um, in a way that takes off the pressure of, you know, having something be super hyper polished before you put it out to the world. Um, And I think that's one thing that also makes queer, uh, putting out queer content just more accessible. Um, And, you know, I I like the fact that, you know, newsletters are becoming more and more of a thing um, that really anyone can do. And, you know, you can also like make money from it, you can turn into like a big thing. um, But it doesn't have to be that way. So that's something that I'm also really excited about. Yeah, those are both super exciting modes. I agree. Um, Now let's take a step back and get a historical perspective of how we got here. So what are the roots of these conversations on queer community publications? To help us dig up this history, we're going to speak with Jason Bauman, who coordinates the New York Public Library's LGBT initiative. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So to start us off, can you just give us a little bit of information about what exactly you do at NYPL? 
So I'm head of collection development. So I oversee um, all of the purchasing and selection of materials for the research libraries. And I'm also coordinator of the library's LGBT initiative. So about 10 years ago, the library started this fundraising and promotional initiative to uh, raise money to process all of our archives and LGBTQ history and make them more available to the public. And you also have um, an exhibit uh, that recently started, right? I'm wondering if you could tell us about that a bit. Yes. So the show Love and Resistance, Stonewall 50, uh, opened last week. A thousand people came to a reception and first Mm -hmm. program on Friday. Uh, And the show is about uh, LGBTQ culture before and after Stonewall, going from sort of the mid uh, 1960s to the mid 1970s and focusing on forms of protest, uh, bars, publications in the section in print, and then uh, love and showing changes from culture before and after Stonewall. So, what drew you to this kind of work? Uh, you know, for, I had started at New York Public Library. I'm a librarian, and I was there for about 10 years doing educational programming um, and also doing, actually, statistics. I was a library statistician. Hmm. And uh, they they wanted to start this fundraising initiative. And so um, I had been an ACT UP, and I had been a member of the Radical Fairies, which is a gay liberation mm-hmm. uh, group. And they needed somebody who could speak to the archives and why they were important and what these various things were. So mm-hmm. I sort of fell in into this role and it snowballed and has been this amazing thing for me and for the library. So on this episode, we're specifically uh, looking at queer media. So we just had a conversation about the current crisis in queer media. Uh, So we looked at In Two Closing, the layoffs at various outlets like BuzzFeed, and then trouble at legacy pubs like Out. Uh, So is this kind of crisis unique to this moment? Um, As in, was there ever a golden age or has queer media in some way always been precarious? I think it was always precarious. Um, in the 1960s, really, you're dealing with censorship, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, and uh, magazines getting impounded in the mail. And it was, I think, also, the. I mean, the magazines from the 1960s, they're all volunteer publications. You know, people really aren't, except for erotica, I don't think people are really making a living mm-hmm. from those. Um, and in the 1970s, you have this explosion that more, there's some professional magazines, you know, where people are actually able to make a living from it. But I think... Um, by and large, it was a labor of love, you know. Mm-hmm. And personally risky to the people making it, more, much oh, more so, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And even to sell it, you know, you you have like Craig Rodwell, who had Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookstore, who's like first sort of gay bookstore in New York City that's not a porn shop. And um, he talks about being firebomb, his shopping firebomb, death threats, mm-hmm. all of these kinds of things. So risky to produced to be on the in in the exhibition features photos by Kay Luhusen, um, who was probably first photojournalist professional photojournalist mm-hmm. and um, who's doing the covers of the latter and the covers before she took over all had uh, pictures of people picked from behind mm. or pictures of people in silhouette because right. they couldn't risk um, their identities being known and so she took when she took over she started putting people on the cover right and um like Lily Vincenzo, who was another activist. And it was a huge thing to be on the cover of a magazine that you're a lesbian Mm -hmm. in 1960s. Yeah. And the latter was was a super prominent lesbian magazine. Um, I wondered if we wanted, wondered if you could just share with us a few of the big publications of the Mm -hmm. past that people might not know about, but would be interested in. So, um, 
amazing things, the latter um, one, which starts in the 1950s and grows out of Manchin society and had coverage book reviews. Yeah, magazines from the 1960s, I think also people are surprised of what's in them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, when I, we were bringing somebody through the show, and there's a, one the, a lot of them have on the cover adults only, <laughs> and people thinking, oh, there must be some erotica inside. Mm-hmm. And no, there's just no. kind of discussions of politics and discussions about different meetings, how to meet people, uh, and a lot of political arguments and book reviews. All of those magazines actually are filled with book reviews because people were really hungry for reflections of themselves in media. What's your sense of, like, throughout this conversation we've been, uh, on this episode that we've been having, one of the kind of implicit things is, like, how many queer people in the world actually care about Mm -hmm. queer media and queer publications? And you just spoke to, like, this hunger. Certainly, it would make sense that it was, there was much more of that in the past than perhaps there is now for, you know, the the political development that we've had. Um, What's your, do you have a sense of, like, how important publications like the latter and earlier ones were to the community at large? Or was it always like a small, I don't know, like queer intelligentsia that cared about that kind of stuff? You know, like, yeah, what was the readership like? I think the readership was average people, yeah. you know, and I think there was a, a hunger for for that connection to other people, even just personal. I mean, personal's ads, uh, mm-hmm. what other way that people connected? But it wasn't, um, it was average gay people. It was, they weren't academic publications at all. Right. Um, and I think well dis- distributed. I mean, even the latter, there's amazing ladder cover. Um, that was one of the first women to be in the cover of the ladder was actually from Indonesia. Hmm. That the that the magazine had been passed hand to hand to hand and reached this woman in Indonesia, who wow. then wrote in and was featured on the cover of the ladder. So they, they had a tremendous range, even if they didn't have a huge publication run. Right, they'd be reused and passed around. There was this amazing publication, um, uh, Soixante Neuf that was uh, in more like 40s and 50s in New York City. And it um, was like a zine that, and it even would have warnings. We don't have copies of Soissons Neuf, but the um, Gay and Lesbian Community Center has copies. But the copies would say, be careful who you give this to, Hmm. because you could be endangering the people who are covered in this magazine. So um, that hand-to-hand distribution was huge. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. So you, you've we've said uh, so far the 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 term <laughs> or the the place New York has come up a lot, and we've talked about the West Coast a little bit too with one, which was based out there. Are there publications or centers of publication elsewhere in the country that are worth people knowing about? I know you said you mentioned the Radical Fairies. They have they had a, a is it the Radical Fairy Digest? It, it, it's RFD. RFD. And yeah. So that starts in the early seventies, and every issue. And that's like about rural queers, right? Yeah. So what's oh, can cool. you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And so RFD started in early seventies, um, and each actually is rural free delivery, and so it's picking up on. But every issue actually RFD stands for. Something different, <laughs> so um, so that's part, and each issue has a completely different uh, visual identity. But um, so all of those, you'd have these those kind of publications all over the country. Yeah, um, Eric Marcus, who's a historian, we have his papers and also work with him extensively. You know, he says, uh, and I think there's proof of it that really, even before Stonewall, every 
uh, state in the United States had some sort of LGBTQ rights organization, even if it was only a few people. Mm -hmm. And each of those organizations had some kind of newsletter or publication. And this really testified in the the library's collection. One of the things that we have on view on the show is um, the LGBT periodicals collection, which is three – our collections, about 3,000 different titles from the 1950s Mm -hmm. on maybe to the 1990s. And so they're all over the place. Yeah. One that's uh, to point out, uh, Drum, uh, which was actually out of uh, Philadelphia with the Janus Society um, and was actually kind of a bit more of like a almost a physique sort of boy, Mm -hmm. pinup boy kind of magazine, but also had political coverage. And so sometimes these local... Uh, magazines were actually a little more out there and more radical than the New York and California publications. And what do you think we could learn from this history today? You know, I'm not to sort of um, pigeonhole past and present, but I'm wondering, like, you know, how much do you think uh, we could take away from uh, the sort of history and the trajectory of queer publications as we kind of, you know, navigate this still precarious and still tenuous media landscape? Yeah, you know, the the thing that I always point people to is um, it, it's about professionalization, right? And so um, the the activists, and, I mean, of course, people want to get paid, right? That's a, a problem. <laughs> that's one of the problems with journalism, oh, right? Yeah. Is that we, we want people to be able to make a living and do these things um, and have them be sustainable. But it's that community uh, collaboration, right, that made those publications possible, right? So. Um, it's something to make people realize that the in the past these political communities required people to be um, passionately personally involved, right? And that's what really sustains all of this. And so, pe- if people step back and expect somebody else to do the work of being involved for them, hmm. um, it doesn't work. You know, it, that's how political community happens, and that's how political discourse happens. Is that we have to actually be personally and passionately involved. Do you? I mean, we've asked um, sort of ourselves and everyone else that we've talked to for this episode, like, do they feel like queer-focused media um, is as necessary today as it was in the past? Like, in the past, as you've described, it served this function of getting the news out, like, political organizing, um, getting just, like, self-awareness out at a certain point, right, that you other people like me exist. Like, those are all functions that it served. And now we live in a moment where, you know, any mainstream slash progressive news outlet can cover like a a marriage equality kind of story or even, you know, trans rights kind of story with some amount of facility, hopefully. Um, And so, you know, but, but some of us like, like outward still feel like it's good to have queer people making queer news or queer commentary or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you, I mean, you can speak personally or, or sort of generally, like, do you find that that stuff is as relevant anymore. Yeah, I think it's point of view, right? And even if you look at a lot of these uh, periodicals from the 60s or 70s, often they were reporting on the same events that were happening in the mainstream media, Mm -hmm. but reporting on them from a queer point of view Mm -hmm, instead. And so I think that's because we can all just find out on Reuters what happened yesterday, right? But we want to know what it meant, Mm -hmm. right? And I think another thing... If sort of leveraging um, things like podcasts like this, that it's that uh, 
conversation about what happened, mm-hmm. right? And that's what would happen in these magazines in the 60s and 70s, and that hopefully is happening today through this kind of uh, media, that there's a dialogue, right, that um, taking place between the reader and the writer yeah. and the community. And I think that's the most essential thing, and that's how you draw these people in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And given how deeply entrenched you are in all this work, I'm wondering if you have any any general thoughts on where you think queer media might might go in the future, near term, far term, whatever? I think there's a hunger for the past. And, and so, uh, so uh, colleague Eric Marcus, we have his um, archive. He did all of these interviews to create Making Gay History. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, which, which is a wonderful podcast yeah, as well. Amazing podcast. And we're using, so we also have an anthology coming out, the Stonewall Reader, that has excerpts from his archive and some of the excerpts from the podcast. Um, and so I think using that archive to bring pe- the history to the present mm-hmm. is I think people actually do want to know what happened, you know, not just today, but see it in a larger picture. And so I think the more and more that we bring that history to bear, um, the better and the deeper kind of appreciation we have of the present. You've got the Stonewall Reader sitting here in front of us. It's a beautiful book. Um, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about it and, and why they should pick it up? So the book has three parts. And so the first lays out um, people's memoir from before Stonewall and really trying to get a feeling of what it was like to be in the United States and uh, living as a gay person before mm-hmm. Stonewall mm-hmm. So there, and also as a trans person. So there's uh, memoirs from Virginia Prince, who was an important transgender activist on the West Coast. Uh, there's Audre Lorde, mm-hmm. uh, Samuel Delaney, also um, very pioneering activist Ernestine Eckstein, who was one of the only African-Americans in the homophile movement. Wow. Then the middle section is all about Stonewall and people's memories of Stonewall. And I really tried to put in um, as many contradictory stories as possible about (laughs) Stonewall um, because Uh people really try to establish a consensus of what happened at what time and who was there and who threw a rock and who did this. And rather than try and foreclose to make an official story to try and give as many conflicting accounts as possible so that people can make their decisions for themselves about what they think happened and what they think was important. Riots are conflicting events usually. (laughs) Right. That makes sense. Better money perspectives, right? (laughs) I I think I'm the more I work on this, I'm kind of against having an official story of mm-hmm. what happened and prefer to, and that's kind of our role as a librarian yeah. was a unique opportunity for us to present as many stories as possible. And then the last section after Stonewall gives uh, people's memoirs from the gay liberation gay liberation movement in the 1970s, uh, both in New York City, but also in, in California. Um, Jean Cordova, who was in sort of Lesbian Tide, which was one of the first uh, lesbian news weeklies and her account of the Pride March in 71 in Los Angeles. Um, also, uh, rad- other kinds of radical writers, Joel Hall, who uh, was a key person in uh, Third World Gay Revolution, which is a movement for people of color and mm-hmm. gay liberation movement. So, just trying to widen people's understanding of what was gay liberation about, what were the political possibilities, and hopefully inspire people to be activists today. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And if uh, folks are looking to, for a way to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall that's coming up, uh, I think this book would be a great thing to yeah. pick up mm-hmm. and do that. So out April 30th. And also, please come see the show because it's if you're in New York City, because it's up until uh, July 14th. Wonderful. 
One of the biggest contemporary success stories in queer media is Autostraddle, a website full of news and advice and essays and crafts and other stuff for lesbians and queers and trans people. They run events, including an annual queer camp getaway. And they've grown from a small-time L-word fan blog that launched in 2006 to what is almost certainly the most influential woman-centered queer publication in the country. We are so excited to have the founder and CEO of Autostraddle, Reese Bernard, here with us on the show today. She is joining us from L.A. Hello, Reese. Hi. We're so happy to have you. So happy to be here. So can you start by giving us the abridged Autostraddle origin story? I had a personal blog during the sort of big like bot blogging boom of the mid, mid-aughts, I guess. And um, I was building up a pretty big following around that. And then I started a spinoff blog to recap the L word because I thought I would be good at it. And um, that got picked up by the L word online, which was the number one L word fan site. And so wow. I started building. Yeah. <laughs> so I started building a network around that. Um, and I was mostly at the time I was like a freelance writer. I, I'm not a business person. That's something that I've sort of had to become, but that wasn't really my original background. My background has always been writing. So I started building up a following around that. I started making a lot of queer friends through that. And I'd always kind of wanted to run my own magazine, but I didn't have the patience, I guess, to like work my way up inside someone else's magazine. So I decided to start my own. And we launched the um, like Autostraddle 1.0, I would say, in 2009 on the day that the L word ended because I wanted to like be able to move my following directly onto it. And the original team was, yeah. Jenny died and we were born. <laughs> um, it was basically me and my friends. And most of those friends were people I'd actually met through my blog or through my L word blog. Um, but they were all like very talented, smart, creative people. Um, and I was really lucky to have such talented friends to do it. And my girlfriend at the time was our designer. So from right, right out of the jump, we like looked a lot more professional than we were because I just <laughs> had, I was lucky to have really good, you know, Really smart friends. That's awesome. What were your queer media uh, inspirations? Like if you had to make a mood board and then also what niche were you trying to sort of fill in the queer media landscape? I think my main influence was probably Sassy Magazine, which isn't queer, but that kind of spirit. And I grew up in the, you know, I made zines in the 90s, like any self-respecting teenage girl did. (laughs) And I... Loved I I loved Jane magazine um, when we were we were starting Autostraddle I think we thought of it as being a little bit like queer tea oh yeah and then like a little bit like Jezebel like how Jezebel mixed together you know like sort of celebrity gossip and pop culture stuff with like serious news and feminist issues and things like that and what we were trying to fill I guess was there wasn't a magazine that kind of covered all the topics at once. Like there was like After Ellen, which was mostly focused on pop culture. Um, And we wanted to do something that was more akin to like a a traditional women's magazine, but for queer women specifically. So it's sort of like if I could have just taken the, because I grew up, I read read every single women's magazine every month for most of my life. (laughs) And I wanted to basically have like a Glamour or a, um, a Marie Claire or a Jane that was just, you know, where everything was just gay, you know? So we could have, and we wanted to have like politics and talk about, cause there was, especially back then there was a lot of things happening with like don't ask, don't tell and prop eight. 
And so we wanted to have all that, but we also wanted to have like really fun stuff and we wanted to have dating and sex advice and relationship stuff. And I think from the beginning, our demographic was probably a little bit younger um, than say like Curve Magazine or maybe even after Ellen at the time, I'm not sure. So we sort of wanted to address this like new generation of lesbian and bisexual women. And most of our like interns were in college. So we ended up having like a very big readership on college campuses at first too. So that's kind of um, our, we've, we've expanded to, I think we have a much more diverse age range now, but I think beginning we were, it was a lot of young people, you know, in their twenties. Yeah. One thing that really sticks out to me about Autostraddle more so than I think almost any other media entity I've ever consumed uh, is the feeling of just to be very cliche community among readers. (laughs) There's like very active comment sections. Um, You guys do a lot of IRL events. I know two of my close friends actually met each other at an autostraddle meetup in DC. Oh, yeah. Um, And when I first graduated college and was sort of like queer and single and earnest and like wanted to be seen, I bought an autostraddle t-shirt to be like, this is how I'll find my people. Um, How much does that sort of like community and identification with the brand play into the continued success of like the actual website? I think it plays into the success of our website because people see us as human beings. We're not just, you know, like a name on the screen. And I think they value for a lot of people, Autostraddle was their first queer community when they didn't have it in real life or, or it was an exposure to a type of queer community that they could be a part of one day. And in the beginning, like with, with my personal blog, and I noticed that I had a lot of readers who wanted to, um, or who appreciated seeing me and my friends, like pictures of me and my friends watching the L word. And it was like, they were like, you don't have our own, you know, queer friends. And like, it's, it's like uh, hopeful for us to see that. And so from the very beginning, we really emphasize like we are there for you or real people will respond to your advice. And we're all, we like live on the website in a lot of ways too. A lot of our staff does. So I think that then when it came time to launch our membership program and to need reader support, like our readers have always been so supportive of us financially because I think they really see Autostraddle as not just another news outlet, but like as a community, like as real people, as, um, a really valuable um, source of like of belonging and of understanding that they can't find elsewhere. And commenting isn't as big as it used to be on our site or any other site. But I think that we, you know, really try to foster that that sense of community in really intentional ways. And um, because that's sort of, I think that's maybe the underlying. Um, I'm probably like one of our main goals, or not probably one of our main goals. It is one of our main goals, and I think that translates our success because that has translated to their willingness to financially support us. The um, So I think for a lot of us like elsewhere in queer media, the connection that you guys have with your community of readers is like really sort of ideal and beautiful. But it also strikes me that it, it sort of puts more responsibility on you as like the editorial folks to be like respo- uh, responsive. How has this like symbiotic relationship like, you know, changed the magazine? I think I mean, in so many ways, especially now, because I'm, you know, we're a little bit older, so we're not as in touch with what the kids are saying and doing <laughs> these days. You know? Right. I mean, one one thing that happened pretty early on was the was our audience pushing us to include trans women, mm-hmm. which I hadn't thought to do 
because as I've now written about extensively, and we've, you know, as a publication have talked about extensively, that representation for trans women in the media is like almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. And you definitely, the past few years, there's been like two or three examples, but you never see lesbian trans women ever. And so when we were thinking about having trans representation on our website, we thought about trans men, because that's who we those were our, we had friends who were trans men who hung out with other queer women. So that's who we had. And then people were like, this is a women's website. Why don't you have trans women? And in my head, I was like, well, because trans women aren't queer. They're not lesbians. And then I was like, wait a second. Mm-hmm. That's not true. <laughs> that's just what I thought. Cause I had never seen it. And I had never, I mean, I hadn't knowingly known any, you know, because of how like marginalized and unrepresented this demographic was. And after that day, that conversation, which was a really hard conversation because we were yelled at a lot, but we learned a lot. And I spent like the next year after that, like reading everything I could about, you know, trans, trans women and trans representation and trans misogyny and looking back on like how I could have ever thought what I thought that day is like very shocking to me. And that's part of why we like really wanted to push that because I'm like, if I could have been, immersed in this community and been in some ways the spokesperson for this community, this queer women's community for so long and not even thought for one second about, you know, where the trans women were. And if we were including trans women, then like, who knows what everyone else is thinking, you know? So we really tried to make a difference around that. And that was definitely like from our readers, that wasn't something that was on our radar at all. So on this episode, we're talking a lot about what people get from queer-specific media and queer-run media that they can't get from a mainstream publication that covers queer issues and queer culture. Um, and, you know, is is queer media as necessary now as it was a decade and a half ago or something like that? And I- I'm interested to hear how you feel your, like, what can, what can readers get from Autostraddle that they can't get from any other site that contains content relevant to lesbians and queer women? And also, how does your coverage of queer stuff differ from that coverage in mainstream media? Well, I think that there is a, I mean, part of it is the community. You know that you're talking about it within your own community, that like, it's not a conversation. The conversation in the comments is going to be entirely queer people. So you're not, you don't have to like explain yourself to straight people or like have to talk to straight people about about these things, you know, because you want to be able to, because when, when we do write stories like, you know, Ellen Page is like when we even did like Ellen Page is a lesbian, like when she came out, you know, a million straight people would like respond to us on social media and be like, so what, you know, Ugh. why are you defining all that stuff? And it's like, ah, this is, get, get off our lawn. Yeah. <laughs> Let us have this and, thing. And you weren't invited. Um, but I think that there is, I think there's always a value, especially, you know, to have, especially editors who are queer editing queer stuff because you know a lot more about the community and like what language is appropriate and what people care about and think about and talk about. Like, and we approach everything. Like when we do a coming, when someone else has a coming out post, it's usually like, this is what they said and this is where they said it. And now they're gay. The end. But we're like, this is when people started to think they were gay. This is when they said this other thing that kind of suggested they were gay three years yeah. ago. This is when they appeared on the cover of Marie Claire with Drew Barrymore and they looked a little bit sassic <laughs> about it. You know, like we know, we know the whole history of it too. And I mean, I love, I love history just as one of my main interests, but like, or history. But mm-hmm. I think that we have like a very valuable background that we bring to the work and other people can get that 
background too, if they wanted to spend like a few days researching, but people don't want to do that. So you mentioned after Ellen, and I know that's sort of a weird case study right now because mm. um, the, in my opinion, it's, it's been totally ruined by its parent company who, uh, you know, pretty much like forced everyone out, said it was going to stop publishing new content. Then everyone was upset. They're like kind of publishing new content, but with a very uh, transphobic bent. And I think about, you know, the sustainability of queer media and the fact that y'all are independently owned. How important is it to you to avoid, let's say, like an after Ellen situation from happening to Autostraddle? How important is it to you and the character of Autostraddle that you remain independently owned? Or would you consider selling to a larger entity? For a long time, I always said that I wouldn't consider selling. But like the past year or two, I have I will now say that we would consider it because we are just so, so tired. Um, And we haven't been able to to grow in the ways that we want to. And we haven't been able to pay people what they deserve. And um, that's getting more and more frustrating. And and we want to keep like doing more newer, cooler things, but we don't have more money to do it with. So I think that like in a night in sort of maybe prop, probably a fantasy situation where we could maintain total editorial control, but also like finally have a real budget. Cause I'm so jealous of everyone else's budgets, you know, like dying of jealousy all the time. When I read these stories, like they were able to send out real reporters or they were able to do like this incredible, like multimedia thing, or like they were able to hire this person. There's so many people I want to hire, but they, and they would love to work for us, but they can't because we just can't offer them what everyone else can offer them. But I think that like, obviously the past few months, especially it's been kind of like, well, Yikes. I mean, maybe they can offer them those salaries, but only for two weeks before they shut down, you know, so it's hard to, Mm -hmm. to know if that's really like sustainable either. So I think that like staying independent is, is important to our spirit, but also at some point we either will live or die. And I don't, and it's probably better for us to live in different circumstances than to just go away, which could also very realistically happen within the next year or two if we don't figure out, like, another financial solution to change the direction, you know, to be able to um, keep keep it going. But I would never be able to give up control because I am a work talk, you know? That's <laughs> who I am. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Reese. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. That's just about it for Outward this month, but before we go, we'd like to send you off with your monthly gay agenda. And this time, we're each recommending grassroots media we love. So, Brian, what do you have for us? Okay, so I have a fellow podcast. Um, It is called Grizzly Kiki. Um, It is a podcast featuring two bears who are also drag queens. Um, but the, the show has been going for quite a while, um, and half of it is recapping uh, like in great depth and analyzing in great detail RuPaul's Drag Race. And the other half, which is um, actually more interesting to me, is uh, that they interview drag queens and nightlife uh, personalities and folks that are sort of adjacent to those two worlds um, and kind of get a sense of their careers and what they're doing and what they're contributing to uh, queer life. Um, And I think it's a really valuable 
service actually that this podcast does in giving those people you know some attention and a platform and taking that work seriously because I think you know when you talk about nightlife it's very easy to think of it as kind of frivolous or or unimportant um, but it actually especially for queer folks I think uh, has historically and still uh, is a a huge thing um, just central to the community so um, I appreciate that and recommend that everyone go check out Grizzly Kiki that sounds really good um, I'm going to recommend the comics of J.B. Brager. They are a non-binary Brooklyn-based artist, uh, a beautiful illustrator. Um, they make a lot of patches and pins and stickers and other merch. Um, but they also make zines and have been posting bits of some comics, uh, some works in progress on their Instagram. Uh, they have to do with bodies and gender, uh, top surgery, um, you know, general life stuff, relationships, resilience, very queer and and thoughtful and absolutely gorgeous. Um, and they have a Patreon where you can sign up and see their stuff and buy their zines and whatever. They're posting new stuff all the time. Um, their name is JB Brager, B-R-A-G-E-R. Highly, highly recommend. Also a great Instagram follow. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Uh, so my gay agenda item is a website called Outsports. Um, so it was purchased in 2013 by Vox Media, but it was founded in 1999. Um, wow. Back, yeah, like back in the sort of the, the peak yeah, that's a class of. of independent blogs and websites. Um, and it centers on stories by and about LGBTQ athletes, um, both amateur, so like in college, and also professional. Um, and these stories, you know, they really focus on people around the country. So people in like... Minnesota, people in California, people in, you know, New Orleans, you know, just like everywhere. Um, and the tagline of the site is, uh, courage is courageous. Um, huh. Yeah, so like, it's it's a little hokey. Um, but <laughs> I would love to hear someone unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when I was thinking about it, like, you know, I was like, it's the exact sort of uh, sentiment uh, that would have been, I think, especially important to me when I was younger. Aww. So confession. Uh, so I was a competitive gymnast for, what? yeah, for 10 years. Um, what ages? Yeah, 6 to 16. Damn. Yeah. Revelation. Um, so I took it very seriously. Um, and so this was like, you know, like the uh, latter half of the 90s to like the first half of the 2000s. Uh, but, you know, like at that time being a boy who did gymnastics, you were automatically pegged as like, oh, you're gay. Um, and so, you know, when you're, this is way before I came out. And so um, you you have these dueling pressures of not seeing anything wrong with being gay, but also, you know, feeling compelled in some ways to sort of perform straightness. Um, and so, you know, you would like talk about the girls you like at school while you're at the gym and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> And so, like, I remember... All the cute girls on your gymnastics team. But actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> who are always better than the boys. Um, we were just sort of, like, taking up their space. Um, <laughs> but, like, I remember in sixth grade, for instance, there was this kid in language arts uh, who, like, made fun of me for, like, doing gymnastics or whatever. And there was this other girl in the class who we trained at the same gym. And uh, she, like, came up to me after class one day and was like, don't worry about what he said. Um, and it was, like, this very, like, small seemingly small thing, um, but for, you know, like an 11-year-old to kind of like stick up for me in that way when I didn't really get all the layers behind like how much this would actually affect me was like, you know, it was really important. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, 
so gymnastics has its own set of unique set of challenges when it comes to like how male gymnasts are perce- perceived by those outside the gymnastics community. But, you know, when I think of a, an outlet like OutSports, I think of how important that sort of representation would have been to me as a, you know, a young gay kid growing up anywhere, but especially in South Carolina, you know, so it's sort of, it tries to break that taboo um, that you supposedly can't be both gay and an athlete. It's just generally breaking these barriers. Um, yeah, it's like have, sports are divided into yeah. like you can't be gay or you're definitely gay. Right, right. Like gymnastics and football or something. Right, as opposed to like any sort of like fluidity and just, you know, it's not just sexuality, but also like gender. Um, and so like if I had seen that, you know, back when I was like, oh, my God, Dominique Dawes and like to be able to be like, oh, it's like fine to do that, um, to have those feelings. You know, I think that, you know, that would have made a huge impression on me. Um, so like I'm glad it exists. And if you haven't checked it out, I definitely recommend go checking it out. That's so cool. And they are still publishing. They are. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Love a sports gay. (laughs) All right. That is it for Outward this month. Please send us feedback, topic ideas, and advice questions to outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Twitter and Facebook at Slate Outward. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcast and the original topic of The Queer Conversation. If you like Outward, please subscribe on your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds on March 20th. Bye, Christina. Bye, Brian. See ya, Brandon. Bye, Brian. Ciao for now.